Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Barry Ulmer is the executive director of the Chronic Pain Association of Canada, and he joins us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Barry, it's good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, Roy. So you uh, you heard the interview with the minister, didn't you? I did indeed. So your impression of that interview was what? Uh, I think you did an excellent job bringing the points out, Ray, uh, Roy, and uh, uh, I think it's a tragic that uh, she wasn't really listening, I don't think, so I hope uh, maybe over time she'll she'll get it. So what you heard from the minister didn't surprise you. It's it's the rote answers, trying not to get themselves into trouble, trying to f- maintain the focus on the numbers of people who are dying, but not pointing out who actually is dying, and that's the drug addict vis-a-vis the opioid patient who, in the main, and tell me if I'm wrong, who in the main is living by the rules of the agreement that that patient makes with a doctor and finds relief from the opioids. Fair statement? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, pain, people in pain who are, who are using medication, they're, they're following all the rules. They're doing all the right things. And uh, uh, listening to their doctors and, and doing all those things, yet they're the ones that are really be, being penalized over this whole thing. Uh, they're, they're being lumped in with, uh, with the addict. Uh, and, of course, it's, it's a tragedy with, with what's going on in, in that population, and, and uh, something should be done about it. But, but the, the chronic pain patient, um, uh, Roy, it's, it's, it's criminal, really, what, what they're being put through. And, and how their lives are, are changing. Uh, it's, it's just not right. Give us an example that you know of, Barry. Well, yes, it's, uh, several people, you know, they, they, they've gone into their doctors, basically, and they've, uh, uh, they've been told now because of, of these new uh, uh, convoluted guidelines, basically, that they're, they're going to be cut down, they're going to be tapered off their medication. And most of these people have followed all the rules over the last 15, 20, 25 years, they're on the same dosage. They're living a life that that most of us like would like to live. Like they're able to get up in the morning and and uh, and, and and go to work with some of them. Uh, others, uh, you know, they they're actually able to take their grandchildren to school and those things. Now now this is all going to change. Have one fellow where his his medications he was told uh, uh, directly by a doctor he'd never seen much like your example. Uh, that he has to get off of his medication and they're tapering him down and now he's. Uh, uh, he's back in bed where he was. He can't do the things with his family and that sort of stuff. It's 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 tragic. I mean, if you want to look at epidemics, I think look at the chronic pain population, and you'll see a real epidemic, not not one that's that's made up. Um, I received this email from uh, from Marty. I've had two back surgeries, decompression, original diagnosis, lateral spinal stenosis. Over 10 years ago, I was taken off morphine and put on the Cadillac of painkiller, fentanyl. My pain was at a level where I was able to function relatively normally. Over a month ago, my doctor informed me the College of Physicians informed him that the amount of fentanyl I was receiving was too high. This is being compared to a safe level of 90 milligrams or micrograms of morphine. I now live with considerably more pain to a point where I can do very little. Saturday afternoon, my wife and I listened to your talk about people living with acute pain and suffering because our opioid drug amounts are being reduced. And uh, he goes on to inform me how to get in touch with him, and he's quite happy to tell his story. And I see that again and again and again, Barry. People are, I I hope they're ready to to fight back. I know many people are terrified, 
And it really is a terrifying situation. And if I say to you that, and I mentioned this to our callers or our listeners earlier, I received an email from a man who said the pain, his pain is like he has nerve damage in his face. It's like somebody taking a, a, a clothing iron and heating it to the maximum and ramming it against his face 24 hours a day. Yeah, it's uh, it's a sad situation, Roy. And uh, it, and and like I say, what what they're doing is wrong. And this this thing with these morphine equivalents is is a myth, and it's all made up too. Because there's there's no standard out there that they can actually calculate the proper equivalencies uh, to get the proper medication. And and there's nothing wrong with 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 fentanyl as long as it's done as as Marty is doing it, obviously, and he's had success with it. And and I chuckle, like like 25 micrograms of, of the fentanyl patch, basically, is well over that 90 mil, that 90 milligram equivalency of morphine anyway. So so he's at 25 micrograms. He's probably not going to get much control, basically, from his situation over the years. So he's he's right out there, uh, never, never land, right off the bat. And, and uh, so the myths that they put out there about these things, they... Uh, it, it's it's just mind-boggling at time. It's uh, quite frankly, it, uh, it's kind of a fraud. Yeah. How often do you hear the word suicide? Well, just about from everybody you talk to, they all have all, almost all of them have have plans within their uh, within their lives. If if things get worse or or they have to go back to where they were at one time, suicide is a reality. And 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 studies show that basically as well. The the, the rate is, is is much higher than than the normal uh, uh, population. And and the really sad part about it, when it comes to chronic pain patients, when they commit suicide, it's not a call for help. It's a means for them of of pain management. And and most of those cases, it's not uh, you know help me out later on. They're successful the first time. So that's that's uh, it's sad. It's the only way they can think of to end the pain is to end their lives. It's horrid. Yep. I want you, Barry, just have a listen to this question and answer with with the minister. Dr. Philpott, why is all the talk from governments about painkillers instead of pain? You do know that people who take painkillers, people who take opioids, do it just to make life tolerable. Well, I think that's a fantastic point, and uh, I think you're absolutely right that uh, uh, it's a fair point that the conversation needs to be around the pain and recognizing that when people do take uh, substances that uh, are used for controlling pain, it's because they have pain, sometimes uh, physical, sometimes psychological, but uh, the pain is uh, certainly should be a central theme to this conversation. What kind of answer was that, Barry? Well, I, I, think I know the question was fantastic, but what about the answer? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think she's right. The, the pain should should come about, but I, I think the first thing I would say is, is I, I kind of move away from the word painkillers because right away that that's a pejorative. So there, it's pain relievers mm-hmm. for people who are using them, basically. But 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 it's amazing that she would she would indicate that sure pain should be a focus. Yet she spent over six hundred thousand dollars on on sponsoring these guidelines, which will do basically nothing for anybody instead of putting it into education. You know, Roy, we have seventeen teaching facilities in this country, 
and not one of them have an organized curriculum on teaching new med, med students about what pain is and how to deal with it and, and do things of that nature. So why didn't she spend the $600,000 on, on, on something of that nature? I mean, we, we're not spending our, our medical dollars wisely, especially when it comes to pain. It, it's just wrong, and I think it's time, and, and as, as we all know, Dr. Our, uh, Minister Philpott is, is a medical doctor herself, basically, but uh, and they take an oath, but obviously some something's been missed along the way. Well, I said to her last weekend, I'm sure you know these words, first, do no harm, the first word from the words from the Hippocratic Oath. I also asked Dr. Philpott how well she would sleep if she knew that pain patients had committed suicide because the government of Canada, backed by researchers, um, drove them to it. How well would you sleep? That's in there somewhere. I don't know where it is, but it's in there somewhere. Yeah. So, uh, Barry, one final question for you. What do, what, are the, uh, what do politicians say to you when you meet with them, and you meet with them fairly regularly, health ministers? Is it worth your time? Oh, sure. You, you, you hear the same, same thing from all of them, basically, that, uh, you know, they, they uh, uh, feel the situation and they want to do something about it, but they're more interested, I think, in... in uh, looking like they're doing something for the other aspect of, of the overdosing, yeah. which has nothing to do with, with... So they have an agenda. They haven't got a clue what they're doing. The pain patient is expendable whether or not they commit suicide. Um, that's the only thing I can come up with. When you, when you write them off or you use some sort of throwaway line, well, try something else. Try You know, there's, there's different options. Like in the guidelines, you know, they say, well, here's what we'll do. We'll get a team together. We'll have a nurse practitioner, a doctor. We'll have a kinesiologist. We'll have a, a chiropractor. We'll have this and this and this and this and this. We live in a country where 4 million people don't have a family doctor. I've said this a million times. How are you going to put a, play, a team like that together in Canada? When I spoke to the editor of the guidelines, he said essentially, well, yeah, you're, you're right. It's impossible. So... Yeah, well, you hit the nail right on, on the head, Roy. That's, you know, uh, it's, it's like Roy would like to have a yeah. brand-new $400,000 Ferrari, but pff, it's yeah. impossible. Yeah. i got to go, Barry. Uh, it's just amazing. Thanks yeah. for all you do. We'll have you back on the show. Thanks, Barry. Good talking to you. Take care. All the best. Barry Ulmer is the executive director of the Chronic Pain Association of Canada. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. A year ago, right about now, we were starting to hear some very, very strong opinions about Donald Trump becoming the president of the United States from right across Canada and from our listeners in the United States. Strong views. This guy is going to win. There were equally strong views saying, not a chance. And in July, you'll remember, I went on the air and I said, he cannot lose. He's going to win. The rest we know, but the story continues to develop. And earlier in the week, the former Federal Bureau of Investigation Director, James Comey, testified before Congress. I want you to just listen to a couple of very short clips of what the director said, or former director said. There should be no fuzz on this whatsoever. The Russians interfered in our election during the 2016 cycle. All I can do is hope. Uh, the, the president surely knows whether he taped me, and if he did, uh, my feelings aren't hurt. Release the entire, release all the tapes. I'm gotcha. good with it. I was playing in my mind, what should my response be? And that's why I very carefully chose the words. And look, I, I've seen the tweet about tapes. Lordy, I hope there are tapes. And here, two very brief clips from the president 
I hardly know the man. I'm not going to say I want you to pledge allegiance. Who would do that? Who would ask a man to pledge allegiance under oath? I mean, think of it. I hardly know the man. In the meantime, no collusion, no obstruction. He's a leaker. Uh, but we want to get back to running our great country. Jobs, trade deficits, we want them to disappear fast. So there's Donald Trump, president of the United States. Mark Simone is a longtime Donald Trump friend. He's the number one rated New York City radio talk show host between 10 a.m. and noon at 710 WOR Radio. Joins us on the Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mark, thank you very much. Did Comey help or hurt himself with his public testimony? He's a self-confessed leaker now. Well, he helped himself. It's difficult to me. He helped himself. He hurt himself He's, uh, I think as people are starting to see, a very confused, mixed up guy at times. And if you notice the way he throws in those words, he was queasy, he was uneasy, he was mildly nauseous. Seems to have some gastrointestinal problems as well uh, at, at all times. Uh, Carl Rove once said, and I always remember this, he just said, Comey is the most sanctimonious, demeaning guy I ever met in all of Washington. Uh, he just considers himself holier than thou. He's always, always, always preaching and scolding. And uh, I think that side of him didn't go over well with Americans. There's a lot of things that came out in that testimony that the media mostly overlooks. One of the outrageous things was how dare Trump uh, tell everybody to leave the room and be alone with the FBI director that supposedly there was something very wrong with that. Comey testified that the first time he ever met Trump, they went for a briefing, all the... uh, the guys, the FBI had, the CIA had, the intelligence director, they all went to Trump Town and met with him. And Comey said, towards the end, he asked everybody to leave the room. He'd like to be alone with Trump, and he wanted to discuss something with him. So Trump is brand new to all of this. He's just taken office. Uh, Comey set the precedent that it's okay to chase everybody out of the room and have a meeting alone. Why would Trump not think it's okay for him to do that at some point? Uh, and I, I think nobody picked up on that. So. And to me, that's setting a precedent. Yeah, it's okay to meet alone. Yeah, and didn't he also say? And I don't remember the exact word, but it was something along the lines that he probably should have said something, but he didn't have the courage to do it. This is from the FBI director. Yeah, Comey seems to have all the courage whenever he needs it. I I think uh, he just realized it, it, it might sound like Trump was trying to lean on him, but he clearly never crossed any kind of legal line. Also. Uh, and, and Professor Alan Dershowitz, great legal scholar, who's no Trump fan, keeps making the point. Trump could at any time order Comey to shut down the investigation. He could at any time pardon Michael Flynn. So he has every right to shut down an investigation at any time. But he certainly said he didn't order that. The last example was President Bush Sr. when they were investigating Cap Weinberger, one of his top aides. And he shut the whole thing down. In fact, just to make sure he pardoned Weinberger before any trial or anything took place. So within his right to do it. And he used the word hope. I hope you can uh, see letting this go. Here's what it really came down to. He was asking for compassion for a war hero. I don't really, to me, that's not obstruction of justice. He was just asking for some compassion. Great military guy. He may have, you know, done a couple things that people didn't like at the end. But he was a war hero, and you do show compassion in those cases. Yeah. Uh, you know Donald Trump. You've known him for a long time. 
tell us something about the man yeah. that we about his personality. How how is all of this going to affect his ability to do the job as president of the United States? By all of this, I mean everything that's gone on from the tiniest attacks to the major attacks. Some people suggesting Barack Obama's running it all from from a, a bunker somewhere in Washington D.C. <laughs> this will only help him. I've been watching him for twenty five years. He is some kind of superhero in one respect. He can take more incoming fire than any human being ever. And since he uh, has been the president-elect, it wasn't just incoming fire. It was kill shots. It was nuclear bombs going off all over the place, people trying to take him down every second. Nothing stops him. He never falters. He never tires. It never gets to him. In fact, it gives him energy. Uh, I've seen this in a thousand business situations with him through the years. He loves this. He's the strongest guy I've ever seen when it comes to Keep moving forward. Don't let anything affect you. If you study every big deal he's ever done, there was always this chaos, this controversy, the attacks on him. And then the next thing you know, there's the building standing there. So in the end, and that might be a year from now, in the end, he'll start getting it done. Legislation passed, uh, the budget that everybody wants, the tax breaks everybody wants, the wall will be under construction. When it comes time for the midterm elections, next year. Once he's got some victories, some successes, some achievements, uh, I think everything will be fine for him. The left is, does always go through this chaos before it, it turns out all right. Yeah. The left is, is absolutely daft about this. I mean, they're just going, um, they're finding new levels of, of the word berserk. And, and, yeah. and I don't know whether they now consider Comey to be a saint or sinner. They just vacillate back and forth. But, but the left is just going berserk. But Trump has always said, I've been through this with him uh, in you know, smaller matters where everybody was after him, local politicians, press, competitors, and he always said, take it as a compliment. If they weren't after you, then you're not doing something right. Uh, he said, you've got them upset, uh, it's perfect. And he always said, this is not anger, this is fear. They're really afraid he's going to succeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they didn't feel they're threatened by it, they wouldn't be after him so hard. He's been, by the way, investigating Comey for three months. He's got a team of lawyers led by Mark Kazowitz, smartest lawyer in the world. They've really been digging into Comey. They're going to come after him legally in a number of ways. Comey is going to have a hell of a legal bill by the time they're done. <laughs> and he may have a real problem. He leaked out that memo as he's admitted. Yeah. Uh, he said when he left the meeting, he got right into the van and started typing. Uh, there's a little gray area here, but if that was an FBI computer he typed it on, it's officially a government document. And he didn't do what he needs to do to make that become a private document. So it may have been illegally leaked, whether it was classified or unclassified, if that was a government document. Is it is it reasonable to ask, Mr. Comey, since you admit to leaking a specific document, which was carried, and you leaked it to a law professor who leaked it to the New York Times, uh, is it fair to ask whether Comey may be the source for a whole series of leaks? Well, I think he clearly was. I always thought he was. You know, he was fired for five or six reasons. I know on an interview Trump said it was the Russian thing, and that was one reason. But there were a number of reasons. One of the big reasons was he he never bothered to investigate the leaking, and the leaking of these government documents is serious business. He wouldn't open an investigation. Everybody assumed it's because he was one of the leakers, and that's why he couldn't open it. I think by confessing to this one leak, it's becoming more obvious he was a leaker throughout the whole thing. He confessed to this one because it took place after he was FBI director. But everybody thinks he was doing it while, while he was the director. And if they can catch him on that, he's got a real problem. Mm-hmm. Mark, one more question for you. Where does Russia now fit 
into the overall equation after Comey's testimony? Is it more or less of an issue? Well, one thing became clear. Donald Trump was never the target of any investigation. It's another reason he got fired. I think Trump blames him for misleading the public about that. He never made it clear to the public. There's nothing on Trump that they're looking at. And I think the Russia conspiracy stuff fell apart. The collusion fell apart. Even Chris Matthews on uh, our most liberal network, he's one of our most liberal Trump-hating commentators, even he said, that's it, the Russia collusion thing is dead. As far as tampering and hacking into things, I, I'm sure they did it, tried to do it all over the place in 2016. What nobody mentions is, I'm sure they did it in 2012, 2008, and in every election we've had, and I'm sure China and North Korea and everybody else is hacking into anything they can. Yeah. I guess everything will be okay when Chris Matthews admits to feeling a shiver up and down his leg when Donald Trump speaks. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the shivers up and down their back. You're a little afraid of him right now. <laughs> Mark, I appreciate the time. Thanks for uh, making yourself available to us. All right. Love the show. We love All the best. Bye-bye. Mark Simone from WOR Radio in New York City. He's the number one rated talk show host in his uh, Time slot of 10 a.m. to noon. I was just remembering that uh, on the first anniversary of 9-11, we did a chorus radio broadcast from WOR. And um, in the newsroom, they took us to a small window. Rick Samprin from CHML, the assistant program director and uh, assistant news director, uh, Rick was with me at the time. He was my program producer, and uh, they took us to a window. And they said, now you look out that window. That's where the World Trade Center stood. And then they talked about having seen planes hit the World Trade Center. That was a year after. And that was a WOR. Anyway, that was uh, Mark Sim- uh, Simone from WOR Radio. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. It's another health issue. And one that's developing in Canada's parliament, not as it should be, but not because of lack of trying, by conservative member of parliament from the Edmonton area, Mike Lake. Mike continues to try to obtain an answer from Justin Trudeau in parliament about why the liberals refuse to assist or provide funding assistance for the Canadian Autism Partnership. Now, Stephen Harper had money in his budget The Liberal Government of Canada, under the auspices and direction, immediate direction, of Bill Morneau, the finance minister, stroked it out. And when Mr. Lake confronts the Prime Minister in Canada's Parliament to speak about this issue, well, it's classic Justin Trudeau. And uh, Mike Lake joins me on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network, along with Canadian hockey legend... Haley Wickenheiser, and Haley is supporting uh, Mike and the entire issue of providing support for the Canadian Autism Partnership. I'm going to ignore you for a second, Mike, and just say, Haley, thank you for doing this, and thanks for all the thrills you gave us playing hockey for this country. <laughs> you're welcome, Roy. My pleasure. Now, you were, I mean, you're just so fantastic. I, I, watched, I watched one of your games when you were in Finland. I got an opportunity to watch the whole thing. It was like three weeks later. But uh, you're the best player on that team. <laughs> well, thanks. I uh, I certainly uh, had a a long career, and I I got as much out of hockey as I ever gave to it, and uh, it, was, it was a fantastic. 
Isn't that great when you can say that? I got as much out of it as I gave. Yeah, no, I really did. I mean, everything in my life, in some way, shape, or form, I owe to the game. And, uh, that's why I think it's, it's the greatest game. There's just so much that it has to offer um, to those who want to play. Yeah. Haley, before I speak with uh, Mr. Lake about what's going on in Parliament, would you please tell us why this is an issue of supporting the cause of uh, assisting the Canadian Autism Partnership is so significantly important to you? Yeah, well, I think, you know, just a quick background for those listeners that uh, may not know, I did my master's degree in autism, and I, I started a program eight years ago called Stepping Out, which uh, worked with young adults on the spectrum uh, as a way to help them uh, get physical education and um, really just get moving. And my, my master's moved into looking at how does exercise affect uh, the brains of young adults on the spectrum. And what I was really surprised to see when I sort of delved into this area, and I stumbled on it by chance, was um, just how little research was done, especially in the area that I was looking at. And, and when I was talking to parents um, with with the kids on the spectrum, just how much work they've had to do on their own um, to get support, to find resources, and uh, and and then in speaking, getting to know Mike a little bit, just how important this, this federal partnership is, really as just a guiding light and resource for the rest of Canada and the provinces to say, okay, here's the best practices, here's the top research, here's what we have to offer, so that everyone can be on the same page when it comes to giving a child the best chance at having a good quality of life uh, that lives on the spectrum. So, uh, you know, I'm not really interested in the politics around this. This is just the right thing to do, and it makes complete sense to me. And I think that's the way most people in this country would approach it, not as a political issue. But, uh, Mike, what's going on in Canada's parliament where clearly it is a political issue? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, we, we, we saw, as you mentioned in your in your preamble, that uh, it wasn't funded in the budget, the $19 million over five years that was asked for by the expert working group. Um, it you know, worked out to $3.8 million a year, which in the general scheme of things with a, you know, with a budget deficit of, I think, 20, almost $27 billion, um, $3.8 million is, is not much. And especially when you think about what, uh, what this partnership does, uh, as Haley's mentioning, uh, you know, what it what it does, most of the challenges are at the provincial level, and and uh, and the partnership would bring experts together, some of the top researchers in in Canada, and and really top researchers in the world. Uh, in addition to um, self advocates and and the autism community, the vast, vast, vast majority of the autism community, and and these experts would advise governments in their jurisdiction, much of it provincial, um, on things like early intervention and education and housing and vocation. And you know, uh, Haley spoke really well about the you know the the, the young adults that she worked with and and the, and the benefits of exercise these are these are things that uh, that researchers can speak to governments about and and, and add to, to programming and and uh, and the knowledge base in this country and make sure that that people wherever they are on the spectrum and whatever age they are get the services they need so we moved a, a, an opposition day motion um, last week in the House of Commons and the Conservative members, uh, the New Democratic uh, Party members, uh, Green Party, all unanimously supported this uh, this motion. And what we saw was we needed 19 out of 184 Liberals to also support it. And normally these would be free votes, but uh, um, many, many Liberals had indicated support for the Canadian Autism Partnership in the past. And, uh, and for whatever reason, the government decided to whip their vote against it and only one Liberal stood in favor of it, and every other one uh, opposed it, and, and it was defeated. So is it fair to suggest that it would be the Prime Minister 
who would give the order to to whip the party and 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 instruct his MPs in his caucus to not vote to support the uh, the uh, Canadian Autism Partnership and the funding for it. Well, I mean, I, I don't know the exact dynamic within their party, but it's fair to say that uh, those types of decisions come from the leadership. And, and uh, you know, just like just like in sports, leadership is important and uh, yeah. and uh, people people follow their lead. And, and uh, I don't know what the rationale is for it, but uh, but uh, the, the, the vote failed. And, and right now we are pushing back. Um, there is a significant people have noticed this. Uh, you know, they've noticed the fact that on World Autism Awareness Day, we had. 12 members, uh, actually more than 12 members of the Liberal Party come for the photo op uh, on the steps of Parliament, and, and those same members voted against the uh, Canadian Autism Partnership when the vote came. Doesn't that speak and, volumes? Yeah, it does. It does. And uh, and so uh, I, I really honestly think that it's, you know, with the, the, the pushback that we've seen and the incredible support on social media that we've seen, I, I can't imagine them sticking with this decision, and uh, the voices are just getting stronger now. Haley, uh, you, your master's was in autism, so could you please ex- explain to our listeners, on a very personal level, for someone, and the autism spectrum is wide, but for someone who is dealing with autism, whether it's the person who actually has the, uh, has the condition or whether it's a, a parent or a support person, how significantly important is to get, is to get some extra funding? What does the funding allow the person with autism to accomplish and allow the person who's providing support to uh, to accomplish as well? Well, I think so much of what I see in the kids that I've worked with and the families is, is many of them are just exhausted. It, it, it takes a, a village, I think, in a lot of ways, in a lot of cases, to, to help these young adults. When, when, we, uh, when we see kids that graduate high school, um, Alberta, fortunately, I think is the top in Canada for resources, but many of these kids end up in their mom and dad's basement on the computer. Uh, they don't have friends. They don't have uh, places to go and uh, resources to access, and the families are just completely overwhelmed. And, uh, of course, when you have a young child who's two or three years old, you can be waiting uh, up to two years in some cases to get in for a diagnosis. And, uh, you know, I know the other side of that. My best friend diagnoses autism for a living as a child psychologist, so I get to hear all about that. And so, you know, I think it's just it's something that requires a ton of resources. Um, it's, it's a long-term thing. And if you get to these children young enough where you can impact their quality of life and really get them into some good therapy, it can make a massive difference in who they become in, as an adult as a contributing member to society. So for me, it's, it's very simple, um, and it wouldn't take much to really, you know, tip the balance on all of this. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Let's get back to our conversation with Member of Parliament, Conservative Member of Parliament, uh, Mike Lake from the Edmonton area, whose son is living with autism, and uh, Canadian hockey star Haley Wickenheiser, who is, uh, you're on the way to a medical degree, right? We'll be seeing Dr. Wickenheiser soon. <laughs> Oh, someday down the road, a long ways away. But well, good luck with that, and uh, I'm sure you'd be just as great a doctor as a, as as you were a hockey player and a great ally for people like uh, like Mike. Mike, on a, on, a, on a personal level, and I asked Haley essentially the same question. I'll ask you to give me a fairly quick answer because I want to play that clip that uh, between you and Justin Trudeau. But on a on a personal level, when you look at your son, how much difference would the funding that Mr. Harper's government was ready to provide to um, 
to the Autism Partnership, how much difference would the funding make to the development of a young person with autism all the way to being an adult, and on, from your personal experience? Well, interestingly, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not so much fighting for my own son. We, we've been fortunate. Jaden grew up in Alberta where uh, early intervention funding was the norm uh, for, for kids living with autism, thanks to families that, that fought really hard. Now Jaden's 21, so going into adulthood, and there's, there's, there's challenges right now in Alberta. But, you know, you have families uh, that, that uh, have kids in the same circumstance. And Haley touched on this, you know, in a, in a province like Quebec right now, where families can wait two years for diagnosis and two years for treatment. And so they they don't even get that evidence-based help that they need from two to six in that critical window. And Jaden is a completely different person, a completely more connected person because he got the help that he needed between two and six. Now, he still has significant challenges, and, and that comes with where he is on the spectrum. But when he was, when he was two years old, um, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't connect with people at all. He would sit and play with pots and pans or cups or whatever it would be on the floor for hours and hours on end and didn't recognize people at all. And, and if you were to meet Jaden today, he is one of the most connected people. Without saying a word, he's nonverbal. Without saying a word, he is more connected than just about anybody that I know in my in my entire life and and the other thing about it is you know people with autism have incredible skills and abilities that our society can benefit from if we can help them address the challenges and help them deal with some of the challenges that they face wherever they are on the spectrum and uh, this, this type of an investment to help governments across the country uh, whether it's provincial federal in their jurisdiction to help provide the best information possible to make the best decisions on policy that they can possibly make will unlock so many benefits for for Canadian society as a whole if we can take advantage of those skills and abilities. Okay in about 20-30 seconds can you set up what, what we're going to hear between you and the Prime Minister? Well, I had the chance on on Wednesday to uh, ask the uh, ask the Prime Minister a couple of questions. I'm not sure if you're going to play both of them or just one. No, both. But, uh, oh, that that's perfect. So, um, you know, had the had the chance to uh, to address the the, the non funding. I mean, obviously, as you mentioned earlier, it was a leadership question. Um, in the uh, in both responses, he's pretty much giving the same response that they've given 15 times to questions uh, over uh, over the last several weeks on autism. And it's interesting. In the second one, you'll hear him talk about research. But, uh, you know, what he doesn't realize when he's, answer- when he's answering that question is that four of the top researchers in the world are on the Canadian Autism Partnership Working Group um, and-, and putting this proposal forward among all of the other people that are behind it. So the research community, what they want is they want their research to be used to benefit Canadian right. families. Research without, uh, without being put into use is, is useless, and this puts it into use. All right, so let's have a listen to the exchange between... Mike Lake, Conservative Member of Parliament, father of 21-year-old son with autism, Jaden, and the Prime Minister of Canada. Mr. Speaker, in his rambling justification of his vote against the Canadian Autism Partnership, the Liberal House Leader's Parliamentary Secretary said this, I disagree with members who say that it is 10 cents a day for this or it is only $19 million. I can assure you that every one of the constituents I represent would argue that a million dollars is a lot of money. He'll get no argument from this side on that last point. But as this Liberal Prime Minister racks up a deficit over 25,000 times that million dollars, how is it possible that Canadians living with autism were left behind?
Prime Minister. We recognize that autism spectrum disorder has a significant and lifelong impact on individuals and on their families. Federal investments in research, data improvements, surveillance and training skills are supporting those with autism and their families. There is an extraordinary network of stakeholders across the country raising awareness and providing services to families. Our government will continue to support those efforts through our programs. Mr. Speaker, does the Prime Minister even know that in addition to the vast majority of Canada's autism community, the Canadian Autism Partnership has received overwhelming support from every part of this country. The Canadian Association for Community Living, UNICEF Canada, Plan Canada, Save the Children Canada, World Vision Canada, Global Citizen, Haley Wickenheiser, Elliot Friedman, and many, many more. Conservative, NDP, and Green members were unanimous in our support for Canadians living with autism. And yet every single Liberal but one voted against the partnership. Could the Prime Minister please explain this decision? Prime Minister. Speaker, through the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, the Government of Canada has invested more than $39 million in autism research over the past five years. This investment contributes to providing the research evidence needed for the development of new tools and treatments for those suffering from autism. Uh, we recognize the challenges families are going through, and we stand ready to support them. The only thing that he didn't say that he normally says, Mike, is... Um Canadian, we're working very hard. Anyway, <laughs> well, we, we have about we, we have about a minute and a half. So, final thoughts from uh, from each of you, please, Mike. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, he acknowledges the work of of the working group and the stakeholders across the country, but they're doing nothing about it. And and one of the things that was that was uh, very very in, you know encouraging about that response, you hear all of that applause there after the first question. That's not just Conservative MPs. If you see the video, that's uh, NDP MPs and 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 the Green and Green Party leaders standing up as well in in support of Canadians living with autism. And I think that uh, you know I think that we just need Canadians to continue to let their Liberal members of Parliament know that this is important. Okay. Haley, uh, we have about 30 seconds. Go ahead, please. Yeah, I think my hope is that, you know, cooler heads will prevail and there'll be a little bit more education uh, around this issue towards MPs in Parliament so that they really understand all the facts. I think there's just so much to deal with in government these days that often decisions are made without really knowing the facts. So uh, I'm very supportive of this. I think uh, most Canadians who get to know about it would be as well. And uh, I hope that, that we'll make uh, this happen with a good groundswell. All right. Uh, Mike Lake, always good speaking with you. Thank you for the time today. We hope the Prime Minister and the government understand the need and react to it. And Haley, thank you very much. Great speaking with you. A real thrill to just talk to you as a former hockey player, but also somebody who's very heavily involved with the medical community and people who need help. Thanks to both of you. Thank you, Roy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. One of the things that we like to do with Catherine Swift, WorkingCanadians.ca, Linda Leatherdale, at Linda Leatherdale, and Michelle Simpson, at Michelle Simpson. They're the beauties on the beast. It's our regular Saturday segment. One of the things we like to do is sort of take a goulash of issues, and then we put a big strainer on top of the dish, and we strain out the political correctness. <laughs> and then we start to munch. And the other BS. And then we yeah. munch. Hour of the beauties. Good. Good. How is great? The beast. Beautiful day. Doing okay. LA. It's it's really 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 hot here in southern Ontario. 
I heard you don't have air conditioning. There's well, a lovely breeze coming across bit? the lake right now. Oh, it's, it, it is. Yeah. We're getting the very, same very breeze. Nice. Oh, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are a lot of things that we want to get at with you, and you've chosen some subjects as well. But I just noted a tweet from you, Catherine. Yeah. It had to do with my interview with uh, Dr. Jane Philpott, yeah. the Federal Minister of Health who asked for the interview because they were going to set me straight and it didn't work out all that well for the minister. <laughs> and so... Clearly she doesn't know you very well. Apparently right? not. <laughs> yeah. And it didn't, uh, it didn't make her Twitter account. I'm just going to play a couple of short snippets from, the, uh, from that interview so, so you can hear that. Here's the first question that I asked her. Dr. Philpott, why is all the talk from governments about painkillers instead of pain? You do know that people who take painkillers, uh, people who take opioids, do it just to make life tolerable. Well, I think that's a fantastic point, and uh, I think you're absolutely right that uh, uh, it's a fair point that the conversation needs to be around the pain and recognizing that when people do take uh, substances that uh, are used for controlling pain, it's because they have pain, sometimes uh, physical, sometimes psychological, but... Uh, the pain is uh, certainly should be a central theme to this conversation. So there's the first one, and here's the second one. It's only about 30 seconds. So then why is all the talk about the painkillers instead of the pain? Well, I, you know, I think it depends who you talk to. I, I, I think this is a, an issue that has a whole range of perspectives on it and, and views, and I certainly uh, try to encourage people to uh, not oversimplify it and not... Uh, not see that uh, there's any one single story to uh, the issue of the fact that uh, we have uh, an overdose uh, epidemic in this country, but uh, you're absolutely right that part of the conversation has to be around the fact that uh, people uh, have pain and that they, if, if they do, that they deserve to get care for that pain. Right about then is that I really started to get irritated. And, uh. the, and the producer who worked with, with me on it said he told someone at the radio station, uh, I've worked with Roy a lot of times. I've never seen him get that, roll his eyes the way he did for, for, yeah. that, for that interview. And it, and it just went downhill from there because the ministry had really nothing to contribute. And totally uh, there was nothing there. There was yeah, nothing no, there. Totally and it's the people who are suffering, the people who are struggling, the people who are in, in, in insane pain who are making suicide plans. Call her earlier today. Some we'll talk to tomorrow. Uh, they're the ones who are being left ha to hang out to dry by the theorists and the politicians. Yep. Well, this, this particular liberal government, and not all liberal governments, to be fair, but they really do believe that they have the answer, and they're going to impose it in their, you know, munificence, in their, you know, wondrousness on everyone else. And, and, this, and that, that interview, that you, you know, what you just played, Roy, just reinforces that for me in spades. Yep. yep. They're, they're the experts. They know everything. And you, you hurt? Oh, no, no. I've got the answer for you. No, no, no. I'm going to, you know. Well, about, right about one and a half questions you. later, she's, the minister said something about uh, having told me something. I said, frankly, minister, you hands, haven't answered any of my questions no. yet. Yeah. And that's where things, well, it, it is what it is. Tomorrow we're going to be joined by Dr. Lynn Mitchell, 
who is, and I have it somewhere, God knows, I have so much paper here. He's the head of the, uh, the, the president or past president of the Association of Pain Physicians in the United States. And he heard about the interview, listened to it, saw my blog piece on the Global News uh, webpage, contacted me and wants to be on the show because he stands with the patient. So he's Wonderful. going to start, start with us tomorrow. Good. Yeah. And, and you've probably heard of uh, Dawn Ray Daunton, the writer. She writes uh, columns for the Global Mail and does, does other uh, work uh, as a columnist. Speaking with her the other night, she wrote a column in the Global Mail a couple of days ago after the interview with, uh, with the minister. And she told me she has in place, I don't want to give away everything, but you'll read it if you read her column. Uh, she has a suicide plan in place. And, I mean, this is something she lives with, her husband lives with, but it's not necessary because if she's permitted to take the opioid medication she's been taking for 12 years and hasn't deviated from, she's going to be living reasonably well. And that's the point I made with the minister. I said, what do you think these patients are addicted to? They're not addicted to opioids. They're addicted to living without pain. Exactly. Yeah. It's so. the tail wagging the dog, you know. Yes, it is. You're right. You're right. Problems. You're exactly right. But you don't, you don't, you know, rule out everybody's access yeah. to something that's helping 99% of the people that are taking it. Yeah. I just want to ask Linda a quick question because you went through so much, so much with with your daughter, Skye, yes. uh, when she was nine and then later on. She was, what, 20, 21? Yeah, 22 yeah. when she had to have the bone marrow transplant. Yeah. Did you find that the healthcare system was arbitrary, and I know you have a lot of respect for the doctors and the nurses and everyone who was there for Sky, yes. and and I'm I'm sure rightly so, but did you find at times that it could be arbitrary and wouldn't listen to the patient, wouldn't listen, really wasn't interested, or was that not the case? Do you know what, Roy? I, I like it's a tough time, tough thing to go through, as you well know. Yes, but I have to say that. When we were at Princess Margaret and when we were at Sick Kids, there may be some that are arbitrary, but overall, I thought she got tremendous care. That's great. I think the thing that concerned me, though, was later, after she had her bone marrow transplant, we had a big fiasco here in Ontario, and patients who needed a bone marrow transplant were being referred to the United States. That bothered me. Yeah, as it should. I would think, though, that there's not enough checks and balances in the system. There are terrific people in the healthcare. So I've had cancer, as you know. I went through that particular nightmare as well. And there were great people, but there were also people that, frankly, <laughs> you know, I would have liked to have met in a dark alley. Um, and th- there aren't enough checks and balances to exactly. weed out the people that, frankly, because they're, they're often in life and death decision situations. Yeah. yeah. And, and they... A lot, and, and, you know, I mean, again, most are good. Most are good, to be fair, but some shouldn't be there at all. And we don't really have much in the and even including doctors, for that matter, because doctors also over-prescribe stuff. Some, some do. And, but there aren't enough means of sort of overseeing this and getting the people that aren't in the appropriate situations, getting them out of there. Yeah, they try for the one-size-fits-all formula. Well, yeah. it doesn't. Yeah, and mental health is a huge issue in Canada right now. I just want to say that. So no, it is. We have to be concerned for our veterans, for our children, for everybody. And we have to have an open mind, not that we're going to take the drugs away. Come on, guys. You know. What they're, I, what they're tr- I think what they're, what they're trying to do is save money. What they're trying to do is save money. And so they try that one-size-fits-all formula. And if you don't happen to agree with them or you don't happen to fit into their formula, they're going to shovel you into that formula anyway. And in this case, 
if they're worried about about opioid overdose deaths, and and they're taking issues and numbers that relate to uh, generic addicts who buy their drugs on, on the street corner, and they're using it and they're pointing those numbers toward chronic pain patients. If they don't if they don't realize that, if they don't start listening to the chronic pain patients and give them what they need, yeah. they're going to be dealing with a chronic pain patient suicide uh, epidemic. Exactly. You know what? They've made opioid a dirty, ugly yeah, word. And I know patients will get in touch with me and they'll say, I'd go on the air with you because I have something to tell you and I'll tell you privately, Roy, but I can't go on the air with you because there's a stigma or... I, won't, I don't want to use my real name, which I understand completely. Well, not only that, Roy, it's funny. I was just about to mention the fact that when I, again, when I went through the cancer thing, and I, I'm lucky in the fact that, A, I'm still alive, but also that, you know, I, I did it at a point in my life that I was still reasonably sane. You know, I, I feel for the people that are, aren't, aren't able really to make good decisions anymore and, and so on. Yeah. They need to depend on this. And so many of these people, and I, I, I bumped into so many of them when I was having that chemo experience and everything, that they were afraid to question anything because these people determined life and death for them. And isn't yeah. that awful? That yeah. is awful. You feel so vulnerable at that a time in your life when you're mega vulnerable that you don't even want to say, oh, I don't know. I mean, my own experience, <laughs> I, I questioned a lot. Of course, I'm an ornery, uh, an ornery cuss, as you guys know, but... You know, I questioned I know a lot that. of stuff, and you know what? In retrospect, I was right a lot mm-hmm. of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, do I need that port in my chest for chemo? I said, no, I don't think I do. And that was the right thing. Anyway, I digress, but... I'm going to tell you, I'm going to I'm going to share some... dependent on folks that sometimes really don't act in their best interest. I'm going to share something with you that I haven't, don't believe I've said it anywhere. I wasn't going to, I was going to wait for, I didn't want to, what I was going to do about it, but I'm going to tell you. About two months before Eliana died, she she was in a hospital, and she was in a hospital in Quebec, and the people in Quebec were generally marvelous at the hospital. There were some real obstinate, as there are anywhere, but generally they were great, and we had great doctors and great nurses, but there were some, like one uh, I, I went to, to see my wife one morning, uh, you know, uh, I was there early, and she didn't look, she didn't, something was wrong that was out of the, sort of, the parameter of the cancer. And I said, honey, what's, uh, what's the matter? And she said, I don't want you to go and turn over furniture and chase people down the hall. Yeah. Um, but, and she said, promise me you won't. So I made a conditional promise. And she said that a nurse had come in. She she pressed the button. She needed help. Three o'clock in the morning. The nurse came in and uh, spoke to her in French. And my wife had reasonable, you know, pretty good knowledge of French. But, and was a former um, primary care head nurse herself. And so she she couldn't quite connect with the nurse in French. So she asked her, my wife would have been always polite. She was always, always tremendously polite. And she said, could we do this in English? And the nurse said to her, ici on parle français, turned around and walked out of the room. What? What? And I went to see the head doctor and he just more or less shrugged. Yeah. 
What can I do? Those are people that should not be in the caring industry because they don't care. Here we speak French. They don't care. And walked out the room. This is somebody who's clearly dying. Disgusting. Roy. Disgusting. Oh, I'm I'm totally disgusted. Because this is the toughest thing that you go through, Roy, and you've been in that road, and it is not an easy one. You need compassion around you. And as I say, I, I... Thank God. I think Sky may have a different view. There might have been a couple that weren't as nice, but overall, they were great. Yeah, and this was one. This is one person. I don't want to say. I don't want to suggest it was everybody. We need more private sector players in the system within a public within a public single payer system like they have in Northern Europe and whatnot. Because if they, if 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 a lot of these people that don't behave well, like those people, Roy, then. Somebody else will do it better, and they will take the business away from them, and yeah. they will face consequences. And right now, there's no consequence. The money should That's follow right. the the money should follow the patient. Damn right. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yep. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM 900 CHML. Go to WorkingCanadians.ca and uh, find out about the organization and. That's where Catherine Swift is, Michelle Simpson, at Michelle Simpson on Twitter, former Liberal Member of Parliament and former seatmate to Justin Trudeau in Parliament, and uh, Linda Leatherdale, at Linda Leatherdale, and former money editor of the Toronto Sun. So we've talked about a lot of things, and we haven't gotten into the issues that we, that you, that you guys wanted to... <laughs> I'm thinking the same thing. It's so yeah, hard. Me too. I always send out a tweet. Talking about what we're, you know, what we talked about talking about. And I think some people read that and go, but you guys didn't talk about any of that. (laughs) (laughs) So let's let's get at them really quickly. The UK election was yours, Catherine. Oh, well, I think, listen, I think we've got a really interesting phenomenon going on in a lot of places in the developed world, mostly the developed world, where the the sort of conventional parties, whatever, are getting rejected. The US election was a classic example of that. Um, Brexit was an example. And of course, this recent boy, you know, uh, uh, Theresa May must be saying, why, why did I call that early election? Because she got trounced. And, and the fact that Jeremy Corbyn, that the absolutely insanely left Marxist, you know, uh, guy actually picked up a lot of youth vote. That that's an interesting phenomena that's kind of worrisome because I, you know, there's that old there's, there's that old saying that if you're under thirty and not a socialist, you have no heart, and if you're over thirty and you're not a capitalist, you have no brain, right? And boy, that the, if youth is really thinking that the Corbyn vision, which is the kind of you know East Germany, Venezuela, etc. Uh, view of the world. If they're thinking that's good, that that is a problem. <laughs> well, they like the idea. They like the idea of building walls. I guess. Well, not only that, but hey, government will do everything wonderful for yeah, everybody. Exactly. Right? So government takes care of you. Or do anything. By the way, uh, Corbyn was considered by his own party to be a total loser. Oh, they, they tried to get rid of him. Yeah, Michelle, you were going to get at the issue of uh, the Liberal Party and your former seatmate, the Prime Minister, through his. Various ministers promising to rebuild the Canadian military and make us our global military power to rival that of the United... Well, maybe not. How, how many decades have, has that promise been made? Many. And it's not just, to be fair, the liberals. No, it's every government. It's the conservatives. Yeah, totally. And they did the same thing. They make these huge announcements and everybody gets happy. And they never 
such a long-range plan that it's been punted down beyond the next election. Everybody forgets the only thing we remembered was to buy four leaky used subs <laughs> from the U.K. That's and they're, they're still in dry dock in Halifax. <laughs> I, I know, and they can't shoot <laughs> torpedoes. So that was a, the big... Is that a problem? Well, that's the... Yeah, because I'd like to shoot the torpedo at some... It, it's all about the announcement. Yeah, it boy. is. It is. Anyway... It well, is. You know what, though? Hold on, I Catherine, 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 hold, hold on a second. I want to play you something, okay? And we're almost out of time. I have to play this for you. Well, now I will say, I will say, I have, I have one daughter, and there is something very special about imagining a, a woman prime minister. Yeah. Uh, I, think so. I think it's long overdue. I just don't think we have to wait that long. <laughs> History is not his strong suit. <laughs> Campbell. Honest to goodness, eh? Alright, beauties. Thank you so much for today, as always. Always. Oh, thank you, Roy. We'll talk again. weekend, everyone. Yes, you too. Off to the lake with you, Catherine. I'm in the lake, man. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, toodaloo. Toodaloo. Catherine Swift, Linda Leatherdale, Michelle Simpson, they're the beauties, I'm the rest of it. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.